I'm Dean Olsher, and you're listening to The Next Big Thing. It is so easy to forget sometimes that famous works of art actually come from real-life, flesh-and-blood people. Think about these lines, for example. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, and on it goes. After you hear them enough, you could start to think that they've just always been with us, that they're just part of the air. Well, now listen to them as they were spoken by their author. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. And now I want you to imagine what it must have been like for a young writer, Matthew Power, who got to know Allen Ginsberg more than just as a name on a page and more than even just a voice coming through a speaker, but as a living, breathing, very deep-breathing real-life person. It's been five years since Allen Ginsberg died. I've lived in New York that whole time. Everywhere I go in the city, I feel him. I feel his presence uh, in Tompkins Square Park, in the junkies there, in the punk kids cooking food for the homeless. Even in strange places like uh, the, the pigeons flying around the smokestacks at the Con Ed plant up on 14th Street. Something in him has been infused into the city for me. In September, I I was living on 3rd Street at the time, and every morning you would wake up and and the smoke was there from ground zero. You could smell it. And I imagined that line from Howell. It it kept coming back to me where he he talks about the people who were burned alive in their innocent flannel suits. Who cut their wrists three times unsuccessfully, gave up, and were forced to open antique stores where they thought they were growing old and cried who were burned alive in their innocent flannel suits on Madison Avenue. I imagined him down there at Ground Zero, meditating or proposing that they plant a sunflower field in that void there. Someone once asked him if he minded, in his last years, if he minded living alone in New York with no family, and he made this expansive gesture to the street corner and, and said, this is my family. I was 15 when I first met Allen Ginsberg. It was at my cousin Isaac's bar mitzvah. He had been friends with my aunt Elsa since the 50s. She worked at Grove Press in New York and arranged poetry readings. Everyone in my family had this sort of hushed reverence around him, and I knew that he was someone important, but I had never read any of his poems before. I didn't know anything about him, although I kind of thought of myself as a poet. I remember he put on a yarmulke, which I thought was a really interesting gesture for someone who spent the last 30 years of their lives as a devout Buddhist. At the reception afterward, we were introduced, and we sat down together. It was in a Middle Eastern place. And we were eating stuffed grape leaves and and talking, and my parents were right in the middle of this pretty ugly divorce at the time. So I remember telling him, uh, asking him what he thought I should do about the situation with my parents and he just looked at me and said you look lovable you should seek out people to love not long after he asked me if I wanted to take a walk with him I was 15 years old at the time I didn't think anything was particularly strange about it but Years later, when I mentioned it to him again, he he asked me if I thought he had been hitting on me that night. 
four years after that first time I met him, uh, my aunt, who lives in Cambridge, gave me a call and said that Alan was coming into town. He was doing a book tour in Boston. So I, I drove down, and I spent the whole afternoon at her house pacing around waiting for him to get there. And I wanted to make some kind of a good impression. There's this line from Patterson, William Carlos Williams, where he includes two letters written to him by Ginsburg when Ginsburg was around my age at the time. I know you will be pleased, he wrote, to realize that at least one actual citizen of your community has inherited your experience in his struggle to love and to know his own world city. I wanted to fit into Ginsburg's work in that way, be part of the continuum of American poetry and to sort of assume for my own friends and myself whatever place that was. He arrived at the door. He has a cloth bag full of poetry over one shoulder, and he's holding his harmonium, uh, which later I would see at a Sotheby's auction get auctioned off for $15,000. And I'd gotten much taller than him since the last time I had seen him. He seemed much slighter, but there was this, this real deep, rich quality to his voice that it was uh, much bigger than his physical persona, you know. He had a tight itinerary while we were in Boston, so we went right away over the Charles to a recording studio to do a spoken word album. Was it Pope in one of his many clever lines? At the recording studio, I sat for eight hours while Ginsburg, who was in a soundproof booth, read all 242 choruses of Mexico City Blues, this book that Kerouac had written while living in a garret in Mexico City 40 years before. For I will write in my will... I regret that I was not able to love money more. This is a man who was at the time 69 years old reading poetry for eight hours straight. And at the end, there were these, these great uh, like mournful choruses about Charlie Parker dying. 239th chorus. Charlie Parker looked like Buddha. Charlie Parker who recently died laughing at a juggler on the TV after weeks of strain and sickness, was called the perfect musician. And his expression and on Ginsburg his face was, was as crying tall. inside the sound booth, and you could hear him in between the takes just Anyhow, softly crying no to himself. Charlie Parker, forgive me. Forgive me for not answering your eyes, for not having made an indication of that which you can devise. Charlie Parker, pray for me. Pray for me and everybody in the nirvanas of your brain where you hide indulgent and huge. By 2 a.m. we finished the recording session and we went back over to Cambridge. My aunt went to bed and Ginsburg and I stayed up sitting around the kitchen table. I remember asking him how he could read poetry for so long, and he said, you just have to breathe properly and, and go with each line. And then he said, I could read you some more if you like. We walked upstairs to the top floor of the house, and he was tired, but he grabbed a stack of poetry books off of the shelf. I sat on the floor with this nervous lump in my throat. I almost knew what was going to happen, but I couldn't tell who was seducing who just listening to the poetry. You know, seduction is always this kind of a dance. I mean, I remember him telling me later that he was surprised by the whole thing himself. But it, you couldn't be a, a teenage kid 
at that time and read his poems and not know that that's what he wanted from you, you know. We talked about poetry, and I asked him what he thought I should write about. And he said, you should write about your love for your friends. It was almost four in the morning, but I was wide awake. He offered to show me how to meditate. And we sat for a few minutes while he, he lectures me. He had this this kind of gently exasperated tone that he would get a lot. You know, keep your spine straight and let everything hang down from your head and breathe and don't close your eyes. And was ordering me around while I was trying to meditate. And of course, I'm sitting there. Uh, I wonder if I'm meditating now. Maybe now I'm meditating. And at the same time, he was holding me and I was, I was afraid to look him in the eyes, you know. So he shut out the light and asked me if I wanted to lie down next to him. And there was this incredible nervous feeling. I didn't know exactly what I wanted out of this encounter, but I knew somehow it was it was meant to happen, like uh, this connection with all these these ghosts of my imagination, everything I had ever thought poetry was supposed to be about. Something in the moment made me at least want to pretend that I was fearless. So I, I laid down in the bed with my shoes on. My heart was racing. I felt, I, I don't know, like I was being married or something. I was afraid, but unbearably curious at the same time. Ginsburg got up and he went over to the sink and he started washing his socks, which is something I've never seen anyone do before. And uh, it seemed strange for me, for someone who would read poems in front of a, a rapt audience of a thousand people, to be standing there at four in the morning washing his socks out in the sink. He came back and said, do you mind if I take my clothes off? I said I didn't mind. He sat cross-legged next to me in the bed, naked, looking kind of like a, an Indian guru in the, in the lamplight from the street. I remember that I reached up and undid the buckle on my overalls. Years later, he said to me he thought that that was audacious of me. The funny thing about kissing a man 50 years older than you is how normal it feels. He had, uh, he was smaller than I was and had this sort of soft, hairless body. It felt like a 17-year-old's. He was infused with this electric energy that I'd, I had never felt before. So I'm lying there and I'm trying to make sense of the whole situation and, and Ginsburg says, Socrates said that the best teaching is done in bed. And I envisioned it as sort of this, this ancient exchange between youth and, and old age. Yeah. Ginsburg kind of offset the romance of that notion by following up with, I'm a vampire sucking your youthful energy. He really didn't seem like a vampire after all. Um, after the initial shock of the whole experience, um, my heart slowed down and I felt more or less at ease and in a way initiated into some rite, some sort of tradition. It was sunrise almost, and the birds were just starting to sing, and uh, I was getting ready to go back to my room downstairs. And I remember asking him kind of nervously, oh, you won't tell anyone? And he just looks at me and laughs and said, I'm not a fink. So in the morning, we met at the breakfast table, and we were both exhausted and never said a word about it. 
And it was like that for the whole week while he was in Boston. I would drive him around the city to book signings, interviews. I was really happy to be there. He was a poetry rock star, way better than a regular rock star. I tried to play it cool, but I would still swell with pride when he, he took my arm walking out of a reading. And every night we would return to Cambridge and return to the upstairs room. And there was nothing strange about it to me, but I still didn't want anyone in my family to know. I felt like it was too strange and bright of a secret to share with them. When the book tour in Boston ended, Ginsburg went on to Chicago, and I went back home to Vermont. So time passed. I went on with my life at college, and I saw Alan whenever our paths happened across. We became friends in a platonic way, and it's, it's those memories, really, that, that I think of more when I think about Alan now. I remember him asking me, uh, have you ever heard of Beck? He was totally excited about Beck and had gone to several of his concerts. I was in college at the time, and he knew more about Beck than I did. The last time I spent with him was a week in the winter of 1997, in January. He came to Elsa's house to see his cardiologist. It was cold, snowy, and he, he could barely shuffle down the street. I remember we went shopping for Tibetan rugs for his loft, and it took a half hour to walk the three blocks down to the store. He wore this heart monitoring machine and a bag on his shoulder, and it recorded every beat over a 24-hour period on, on this roll. I transcribed poems for him that week, uh, typing them out of his journal onto a computer, and I remember showing him a short story I had written, and he told me to drop all the sentimental bullshit and tell the story. Alan was still at Elsa's when I had to leave to go to an internship in Austria. I remember kissing him goodbye on the lips, and he stood in the doorway as my airport taxi pulled away. Three months later, I got an email from my aunt saying that Alan had been diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and that he only had six months to live. There's an old Japanese folktale that says if you fold a thousand paper cranes for someone, that they'll be granted a long and healthy life. So I started folding. And four days and 600 cranes later, I got another email from Elsa, which said, uh, <laughs> Akeb us in Asina, which didn't, of course, make any sense. But I looked at the keyboard and translated it to, Alan is in a coma. She was crying so hard when she wrote it that she couldn't see what she was typing. And the next day he died. And I remember going out into the woods and sobbing. Almost as much for myself as for him because I was moving to New York that summer and I had this vision of you know spending time with him, walking around with him, going shopping for him. And knowing him for years, having him be my tour guide of New York City. And suddenly he was gone.
During that last visit together in Cambridge, I sat for hours at the table and made little origami animals for Alan. We watched The Simpsons. There was none of the flaring seduction of our earlier encounters. I've wondered since then if I should have gone to him in those nights, if I had some sort of youthful energy that could have brought back some of his strength. But I didn't. It seemed to me then that the the last sort of reserves of his old self had concentrated in his voice. And that was still as vibrant as it had always been, even though his body was incredibly frail. There was a time when it, it felt like he was mine, but of course, he was always everybody's. Alan belongs to everybody who, who sees, the way he put it, uh, the dearness of the vanishing moment. It reminds me of something that he wrote when Kerouac died 30 years ago about the role of poetry. And what's the work? Ease the pain of living. Holy Soul by Matthew Power first appeared in a new magazine that's called Hebe.